Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Hyperion Hub. I'm John Alois and I'm joined by Sean Degenhart. Hey there, hi there, ho there. And John Redling Schaefer. Hello there. We like to start things off with our Disney views. And this week, we're going to throw it over to John. Maybe you saw the recent news of the sad development based on many uh, challenging decisions corporations are having to make with some downsizing uh, at Disney World and throughout the Disney company. But trying to stay positive, and while everyone um, who is facing layoffs there stays in our hearts and our minds, I thought it would be nice to take this opportunity to kind of share some of our favorite memories, um, not just of particular cast members per se, but some of the musical groups or entertainment groups that are no longer going to be there perhaps at our next visit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, an unfortunate situation. One of those entertainers uh, we loved to watch was Yeehaw Bob, and he was there for almost three decades, I believe, at uh, Port Orleans Riverside. Saw him when the kids were little, very interactive. Uh, got to see him last year at the Disney meet in Indianapolis, and tremendous amount of energy. So hopefully he gets to come back at some point. Yeah, and the uh, Grand Floridian Society Orchestra is another casualty of some of those layoffs. We've always loved hearing them at the Grand Floridian. I just love that time period, that 1930s, 40s, big band sound with the vintage instruments and actually interviewed Patrick Doyle, um, who just passed away, I believe, a couple years ago. He was the drummer and the leader of the Grand Floridian Society Orchestra. So it was neat getting to interview him, hear his experiences with how he became involved and how much he loved that group. I know they had moved them over to Hollywood Studios, um, filling in at the Beauty and the Beast Theater, um, doing some live entertainment. And that was just recently after the parks reopened, I believe. Um, but then, you know, like you said, another casualty of the layoffs. So hope as well they can come back. Well, and I'll, you know, most recently heard about the uh, crew that runs and wows the crowd over at the Luau at the Polynesian. I uh, have had the experience and fortunate experience to see that production. Um, most of the times you're not at a real luau unless you get a lightning storm and it gets delayed a half hour. That seems to be, if you're there during the summer anyway, that's some of the highlights is you have to wait. Uh, but the physical abilities, the talent, the performance, an obvious casualty because usually we're all huddled under uh, the covering, eating a meal together. That's just not practical right now. But just like you guys said, uh, many fond memories. Um, you know, certainly the goal and hope is that we see all of these groups come back in the very near future. Guys, this week we're talking about a Disney legend, someone not many might know about. Uh, I think it's important to learn as much about the Disney company in its past to see how we got to where we are today. And this gentleman was very influential. We're talking about film director Robert Stevenson. He's the man who directed arguably the greatest film produced by Walt, the Best Picture nominee, Mary Poppins, but he actually directed 19 Disney films over the course of three decades. You're going to see this guy was extremely busy. 
Born the youngest of 12 on March 31st, 1905 in Buxton, England, Robert Stevenson would go on to study science at Cambridge University. It was during a research psychology assignment that involved film enthusiasts where he found an interest in filmmaking. After he left Cambridge, his parents gave him six weeks to find a job. He did. He was an assistant of film producer Michael Balkin. So that's how he broke into the industry. He would eventually gain recognition as a script writer in England and directed his first film, Happy Ever After, in 1932. Stevenson came to the U.S. in the early 1940s, working with legends like David Oselznick and Alfred Hitchcock. He moved into television directing, where he directed over 100 TV episodes in five years. <laughs> in the mid-1950s, Walt Disney came calling. He hired Stevenson to direct Johnny Tremaine. And, of course, as I mentioned on our 4th of July video show, that is something that we watch every single 4th of July in our house. Uh, that came out in 1957. The same year, Disney released the Stevenson-led Old Yeller, another legendary film. It's a sad story, but a film you should see, selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Now, have you guys seen either of these movies? Absolutely. Uh, Johnny Tremaine, like you said, classic 4th of July movie, um, great soundtrack. I mean, it's just classic. When you think live-action Disney, that's one of those films that actually most of the films he directed uh, pop into mind. Old Yeller, I think, is a movie you can only watch once. I think anything beyond that is just too much to handle. But yeah, classics. Do you guys remember the scene in Stripes when they start talking about Old Yeller? Bill Murray's character asks, who cried at the end of Old Yeller? And slowly on, but surely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he worked on Zorro for TV before moving to another wonderful film, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. By this point in 1959, Walt is infatuated with Disneyland and has his eyes set on other large projects and doesn't have as much time to concentrate on films. So he goes to his most trusted director. And that, of course, was Stevenson. Uh, Darby O'Gill, by the way, a fun film that used old-fashioned camera tricks to create leprechauns. Darby is placed on a different visual plane in relation to the leprechauns on screen. Great movie. A singing James Bond, by the way, Sean Connery. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Wonderful film. Then came Hit After Hit, The Absent-Minded Professor in 61, its sequel, The Son of Flubber in 63, The Misadventures of Merlin Jones in 1964, starring Annette Funicello and Tommy Kirk, and its sequel, The Monkey's Uncle, a year later. Monkey's Uncle song, the theme song. Sean, do you know who sang it? That was Annette, wasn't it? Well, yes, she did. With who? Who accompanied her? Do you know? Was it? It wasn't Tommy Sands. No, it was the Beach it was Boys. Was Beach Boys? Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that darn cat in 1965, and others, including one of my favorites, The Love Bug in 1969, which was the second highest-grossing film that year. Now think about that: the 1960s, filled with strife, Vietnam, assassinations, and here we are at the end of the decade. And one of the highest grossing films is a Disney movie, a happy, wonderful Disney movie. So it shows you just how important 
Disney still was to the American public. So by this point, Walt has passed and Robert was still looked upon as a trusted asset and continued to create highly successful films. In 1971, Stevenson directed Bedknobs and Broomsticks. In 74, he was given the studio's two biggest films with very high expectations, Herbie Rides Again and Island at the Top of the World, which... Actually, that property was supposed to be so successful, they planned on creating uh, land in Disneyland based on that really? film. Huh. It did not reach expectations by any stretch, but you can see they're giving him all the biggest projects. His last feature film was The Shaggy Day in 1976. Now, before we move on, it's amazing to me to think about all these huge Disney moments and Robert Stevenson is in the center of them. Well, and you look at the dates. I mean, he's working on multiple projects at a time. So, I mean, and that to put out that many fantastic movies is, I mean, that's something. We want to circle back to the early 1960s. Walt had been working on producing a film based on a series of books by author P.L. Travers as early as 1938, but was having a difficult time securing the film rights because Travers didn't think a movie would do her stories justice. He finally won her over in 1961 and began working on Mary Poppins shortly thereafter. But it's interesting to note as you just talked about, Sean, back in these times, directors at the company shot multiple films a year at times, so they had very little say in casting and pre-production. It's much different today. They were simply handed a script and asked to shoot the film. The screenplay for Mary Poppins was by Bill Walsh and Don Negrotti, with input by the Sherman brothers, of course, who wrote the fabulous music, Walt and P.L. Worked, uh, both worked on the movie. Um, there were many contributors. Walt even cast the lead role himself. Think of that. The head of this company, this, the head of this studio, goes out and casts Julie Andrews in the lead role, who, by the way, had never been in a film before. And he was putting a lot of weight on her shoulders, and obviously she could carry it. So Walt had actually seen Julie in Camelot on Broadway. Um, she was in My Fair Lady on stage in 1956, and then the same Lerner and Lowe um, songwriters did Camelot in 1960. He saw her out there, and that's when he decided he wanted her, brought her out to Hollywood. And if you've heard Julie talk about that experience, she said she had no idea what she was doing, um, you know, moving out to Hollywood. And, you know, really the weight of the world probably felt like it was on her shoulders. Well, she was pregnant, too, by the way, mm -hmm. when he first approached her, and he said, don't worry about it, we'll wait for you. I mean, he knew that she was the one, and she went on to win Best Actress. Uh, she won the Academy Award for her portrayal of uh, Mary Poppins. And as a little history, she won out against Audrey Hepburn, who was nominated for the film My Fair Lady, which Julie was not cast in. Right. Yeah, Audrey Hepburn was cast over her, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, to P.L.'s dismay, Walt cast Dick Van Dyke in the key supporting role of Bert after seeing him in the Dick Van Dyke show. The pride of Danville, Illinois, right? Yes. Yes, not too far from where the Hyperion Hub originates. A major innovation in filmmaking was achieved with the use of the sodium vapor process, which allowed Stevenson to shoot the lead characters on a blank screen and incorporate animated backgrounds behind them. Today, 
This is achieved mostly through the use of green and blue screen in Hollywood. This was done before, especially at the Disney company, but not to this technical level. In fact, Petro Vlahos, Wadsworth E. Pohl, and Ub Iwerks, who helped create Mickey Mouse, of course, won an Academy Award for special effects uh, during this uh, filming of Mary Poppins. You know, one thing while we're talking about the beginning or kind of the uh, start of Mary Poppins, the movie, if you have not seen Saving Mr. Banks, uh, I believe that was 2013, it's sure there are some creative liberties with the background between Walt and and Mrs. Travers, uh, but I just absolutely love some of the scenes where she's throwing a fit about the penguins. The, you know, she she asks if they're actually going to be live penguins, and it's actually Dick Van Dyke with that technology, and it it's just appalling to that that very fine British woman. It's it's just a, one of my favorite scenes. And if you listen at the end credits, they play some of those original recordings from those uh, working sessions. Sounds like a very interesting woman. <laughs> Tom Hanks did a great job as Walt. And Emma Thompson plays PL spectacularly. Great movie. Filming took place between May and September 1963, and post-production took another 11 months. The film premiered on August 27, 1964, and is considered by many as Walt's crowning film achievement. It garnered 13 Academy Award nominations, which is a Disney record. One of those nominations went to Stevenson. Unfortunately, he didn't win, but the film won five that year. While many folks had a hand in the production process, it was up to Stevenson to bring it all together. He created the moods through tones, and shot selection is huge for this movie. We're constantly seeing reactions from the children when they're excited, confused, sad, but mostly when they're in awe at watching Mary do the impossible things she does. It draws us into the action more, and by experiencing their wonder, it brings us into that moment. We can imagine what they're feeling at that time. It's said that Steven Spielberg remembered these cutaways to the uh, kids 20 years later when he mounted a camera at eye level during the filming of E.T. So highly influential film. John, you mentioned the influence it had on generations of movie pioneers. This is taking us all the way through the late 90s. Uh, many of you may even recall the infamous Simpsons episode with Sherry Bobbins, who maybe meets an untimely end at the end of the episode, thanks to a 747. But it is an amazing idea that at that point, you know, nobody saw into the future that eventually they would be owned by Disney. But just the inspiration for an entire episode of a woman coming in to save a household in Springfield inspired by this movie. And then um, also, I sat in on a webinar with Mark Shaman, who is the composer for Mary Poppins Returns, um, also wrote the musical Hairspray. And he said he remembers when he was a little boy sitting watching Mary Poppins in the theater and hearing this little F major string tremolo at the beginning of the overture. And he said it was that movie that got him into songwriting and, you know, that's why he was so honored to do Mary Poppins Returns and be able to use all those little musical quotes from the Sherman Brothers score. Another person who was influenced by this film that I uncovered in my research, Stanley Kubrick, watched this movie several times uh, in preparation of 2001 because of the fantasy elements. And it goes on and on. Part of me also appreciates 
the efforts of the Disney Resort side to honor parts of this. If you've been to the villas at the Grand Floridian, uh, there at Disney World, all you have to do is walk in and look at the fountain. There are the penguins. Mrs. Travers has to be irate somewhere, looking down at this wonderful fountain in the lobby. Even the elevators at the villas have umbrellas that tell you what floor the elevators are on. It's just a subtle, well, the fountain itself isn't subtle, but here and there just are subtle uh, nuances and, and memories of a classic. And sitting outside of Casey's Corner in Magic Kingdom, there's a little sign that says, Do not feed the birds. <laughs> I have not, I don't think I've noticed that. That's great. Uh, this movie, more than any others of his films, is the most rewatchable. I think we've all seen it many times. It created uh, different emotions for me through various stages of my life. Uh, has different meaning for me today as I as a parent uh, than it did when I watched it as a boy with my mom and dad. It is by far his best film, in my opinion. Well, and the score, too. I mean, you can't talk about Mary Poppins without mentioning the Sherman Brothers. And, you know, Feed the Birds is the, in my opinion, the best Disney song ever written. Great story that, you know, Richard has about Walt calling him into his office on Friday afternoons and pointing to the piano saying, play it. You know, so, I mean, the score is fantastic. It hits all the emotional points. Um, and just the whole message of the film is summed up in that one song. John, I liked your point about being a parent. I think as we have all reached that level, the idea of the stress that Mr. Banks is under. And finally, you know what? I got to be there for my kids. The You mentioned um, Feed the Birds. Again, Disney has honored that even to this day with the Mickey Mouse shorts that you see on the Disney Channel. There's an entire short involving a little bird named Tuppence. And so it, it's so fun. I'd use that as an opportunity with my sons. My daughters had already seen it, but my sons, what, what's this about? You know, what, what, why is this grinny bird? Uh, why is this, this song is neat, but what is it? And um, it's just been amazing to, throughout my life, see how it influences me in different ways. My daughter does a great imitation of Mickey saying, oh, Toppins. She loves it. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget the uh, little intro before he locks the birds in there on that short. Uh, sounds familiar to a Walt Disney speech. This land is your land, right? There's a great scene in Saving Mr. Banks. It's a nighttime scene. And Richard is still at the piano working on Feed the Birds. And Walt overhears it and walks into the room and... Uh, Richard finishes and Walt just looks at him and says, that'll do. And that was kind of his way of praising. I mean, that's, his, that's, that's all you got from yeah. Walt. <laughs> In the July 1977 issue of Variety, it was reported that Stevenson's film resume made him the most commercially successful director in the history of Hollywood. He became an American citizen and served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps during World War II. He was married four times. He passed away on April 30th, 1986, and was named a Disney legend in 2002. He's one of those names, guys, I always saw as a kid, but didn't notice till I began to study filmmaking. And today, I look back and wonder how he created so many of these memorable movies. I have seen every single one of his films 
by the way. Uh, he's a, a huge influence on the Disney company even today, as we're talking about, not just with Mary Poppins, but all of his other entities and properties they still dive into every so often. One thing that was missing um, that I wasn't able to uncover too much of was his personal experiences while making those films and just personal moments. I did find a quote on d23.com. He explained the secret of his success by saying, quote, when I'm directing a picture, what I have in mind is a happy audience enjoying it in a movie house End quote. And I don't think you can top that. That's, that's why he got into mm -hmm. the business to entertain. And he did a phenomenal job while he was in the business, 19 films over the course of three decades, Robert Stevenson. Research for this podcast included several sources, the Anderson Live channel on YouTube, the bbc.co.uk, d23.com, the Dusty Flicks blog at dustyflicks.wordpress.com, oscars.org, oxforddmb.com, the 40th anniversary DVD of Mary Poppins, imdb.com, irishtimes.com, the latimes.com, the newyorktimes.com, and Variety. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about or you want to share with us, please email us or send us a voice-recorded message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please go rate and review us be as nice as you can be and tell as many people as you can. Right, guys? Absolutely. I don't want to sound desperate, but yes. <laughs> and until next week, have a great week, everybody. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub.